this is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dula on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. May the Force be with you always. This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? Welcome to another episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm your host, Rob, and we are recording this episode on Monday, May 3rd, 2021. All right, so we are back and uh, back from a long break, actually, and I am joined once again by my good friend and co-host, Master Tom Howell. Tom, welcome back. Wow, what you've done to this place. It's been so long since I've been in the Jedi Temple archives. There's some new paint. Uh, Some of the busts have been uh, spit-shined. It is gleaming in here, and I'm always happy to be on the Jedi Temple archives podcast. We are happy to have you back. It has been far too long. Uh, Certainly, it's been, God, a little bit over four months, and uh, about two days after our last episode on uh, December 24th, I had uh, taken a spill going down some stairs, and uh, tore, or ruptured, uh, fully ruptured my quadriceps tendon on my left leg. So the last few months have been kind of getting that dealt with and rehab and just dealing with the general craziness that surrounded that. So uh, definitely an unexpected break, but uh, happy to be back and fully mobile again and looking forward to uh, seeing, seeing you, Tom, uh, coming up in June when we get down to Orlando, hopefully. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that. Especially, I'm looking forward to checking out those new mall legs they had installed right. in you. Uh, you know, to replace that uh, that torn up knee and and seeing how you uh, get around the parks on those things. I, I think it's going to come in handy. I uh, I have to give a shout out to Charles uh, Charles Westcott over from Conversations Podcast, who with his 3D printer has printed me now uh, a number of uh, new body parts. So. Thankfully, uh, he's going to keep me up and running, but yeah, it's something I wish I'd never go through again. I uh, wish it hadn't happened this time, but you know, life, life has a way of interfering and we just deal with it and move on, uh, to that. end, I do want to give a shout out to our guest, uh, on that December 24th podcast, uh, Gordon Smooter, who, uh, was a wonderful guest and later that day had some pretty serious medical, uh, complications. And, uh, he reached out to me just uh, about a month and a half, two months ago to let, let us know he was doing better and and on the road to recovery so gordon uh well wishes to you and hope that your recovery is still on track and hope hope to talk to you again here Uh, i know that you had given me the names of some kind of luminaries in the uh, star wars universe with regards to puppetry uh, and i'm going to reach out to him and get some of that contact information for future episodes 
That's great. I'm glad to hear that he's on the mend and uh, of course that you're on the mend as well. And uh, everybody, everything is moving forward here as we progress through 2021. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we are on the eve of May the 4th, which is uh, obviously Star Wars Day and a big day in the Star Wars universe and wanted to get this episode out for that. But I also uh, thought it would be the perfect time to dive into one of the topics that I think is uh, certainly for me, one of my favorite Star Wars films and certainly my favorite of the Disney uh, Disney era of Star Wars films, and that is Rogue One. And uh, Tom, I don't know where that really ranks in your pantheon of Star Wars films, but uh, I, I believe from past conversations, it's up there, right? Yeah, it's way up there. I, I, I haven't really recently gone through my list and uh, tried to uh, count them down. You know me when we do, especially on our show, when we do a top five list, you know, we'd probably include the whole grouping anyway, because we can never live in anything to five. But <laughs> uh, I, I Rogue One, it just kind of struck a chord. You know, it, it's this great film that has is an exciting adventure in and of itself, but it also brings up so many nostalgic moments. And uh, it, it's just an exciting film that uh, I really enjoyed. And I know it's one of your favorites for sure. Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, for anyone and Tom and I both fall into this category of, of people that our first contact with Star Wars was literally the very first film when, when it came out in the theaters. And so we've been with it since the beginning. And, you know, I, I, I still have plans to do an episode about, you know, how different people have come to Star Wars. And it always seems to be that whatever that trilogy is that, that is their first foray into Star Wars is the one that kind of imprints themselves on an individual. And for us, you know, the original trilogy is, is really where that occurred where uh, our love for star wars began and and for this particular film one of the things that it hit on so hard was the the look and the feel i mean they really recaptured the cinematography and and the look and feel of those sets from the original star wars film and i know that was one of the things that really resonated with me uh what were your thoughts on that tom uh, agreed. I agreed. You know, it, it, uh, so much of it harkened back to the stories that we grew up with uh, watching in the original trilogy. Uh, and it just it, it just spoke to me personally in so many levels. You know, again, it, it's, it's an exciting adventure just of itself. But then you throw these little gems in there that you're like, oh, 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 there's that. That ties into, you know, A New Hope or that ties into Empire Strikes Back or whatever it is. And it's just one of those things that just made watching and re-watching the film so much more enjoyable. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into some of those uh, those moments and Easter eggs that got put into the film. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, it's one of the first times that we see characters from some of the animated series kind of cross over into the world of the Star Wars cinema experience, uh, specifically with Saw Gerrera, who's kind of the biggest piece. And he comes back from, from both uh, the Clone Wars animated series, as well as a bit into Star Wars Rebels. And then from Rebels, we get references to not only uh, members of the Ghost crew, but we actually get to see the Ghost, uh, the VCX-100 light freighter that they fly in the animated series. Uh, it, it takes life in this particular film, and we see it in a number of scenes. Yeah, it, uh, if you if you blink in a couple of them, you'll miss it. Yeah. But it is definitely sitting right there on Yavin Four. Uh, if you're if you're looking around for it, it's it's again, it's one of those wonderful things that you know they've they've started doing is bringing in all these bits and pieces from these this connected universe out there, and um, it just it, it pulls in 
One, I think it's great. And you were just mentioning it a little bit ago, the fact that so many different people have connected with the Star Wars universe at different time periods. My son, for example, grew up watching the prequel trilogy. And he'll say that Phantom Menace is his favorite film because that's the first one he watched. We're the original trilogy. There's others now being pulled in, of course, by the Clone Wars, uh, by Rebels, uh, by the Mandalorian, uh, you know, currently that are, you know, now finding out, hey, this is such a great universe and one that needs to be explored. And then when you start throwing those little pieces that people love into newer movies, um, it, it just it just kind of welcomes everybody in from whatever period that you grasped the Star Wars fandom. Yeah, and you know the the ghost certainly is is one of the the most obvious, I guess, for people who are familiar with the Star Wars animated series. But there are definitely the callbacks. Uh, we see the blue milk uh, right there in the Urso homestead, which very early on in the film is one of those things that visually ties it back to to A New Hope. Um, you know, what were some of the things, what were some of your favorite moments in terms of Easter eggs or call outs to other films that really, uh, really jumped out at you? You know, I mean, I, I could probably just go through and, and find a bunch of them, but right. I mean, just, you know, so much visitation of the Death Star again and finding out so much more about it and how much more depth, because I mean, yes, you, 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 you see the Death Star, you know, it's this giant space station. It's not a moon. It's a space station. That's no moon. It's a space station. Um, but there's so many still unanswered questions you have about it that get really delved into within this film, you know, as far as, yes, it it does have, it can go through hyperspace, you know? It's like, we didn't know that for sure. You kind of could have assumed that maybe that is, you know, but we found out about that it could do that within this and and how it was structured and why they had this flaws within it. And it just, it just expanded the universe in so many ways. I think that probably is my one favorite little thing about this that ties into the original trilogy. Yeah, uh, certainly there were lots of, of little moments that, you know, blink if you miss them, uh, running into Dr. Evazan and Panda Baba, you know, Jenner so bumping into them. Uh, in Jetta was a big one for anyone who is super familiar with the original trilogy and that whole cantina scene. Uh, and the Blue Milk, as I mentioned before, uh, the, the references back to Star Wars Rebels, uh, to the Clone Wars, but they also have uh, lots of little nods uh, just in terms of the casting of these films, right? So you get Warwick Davis, who is one of the members of Saw Gerrera's military unit, certainly R2-D2 and C-3PO, uh, getting a chance to see them at the Rebel base. But also, uh, you know, Chopper makes an appearance, the mm -hmm. droid from Star Wars Rebels, um, and a reference to uh, to Hera Syndulla, General Syndulla being called over the loudspeaker kind of as they're scrambling the troops. So, um, you know, it's, there's a million little nods and it's one of the interesting things about this film is that there were people who disliked the film because they felt like it was too much fan service, but you know, one of the ongoing jokes with, you know, myself, uh, and other members of the red five network is that, you know, as fans, we want to have those, those call outs and those nods to us as fans, as long as it doesn't overtake the story. Um, you know, it just becomes gratuitous, I guess, but I never felt like that was the case. I felt like everything that was done was kind of a background piece or, um, it never really interfered with the flow of the film. It was something you could see and, and point out, but it didn't interfere with the overall storytelling. 
I agree. I think it found a, the, the perfect balance of just enough of that. Oh, you know, there's so-and-so or, oh, look at that thing over there um, without it being like, okay, we're just going to continuously detour the story uh, just to add this little piece of, of fan service in there. I think, you know, it was just a little blip here, a little blip there, a little touch here, a little touch there. And then we continued on with the storyline and they all fit somewhat within the stories without, so it didn't, totally drive you off course. And again, the, the story within it is an interesting and fascinating one that uh, I, I find extremely, again, interesting that it was just basically taken out of one little line within the original opening crawl to the original Star Wars, later renamed A New Hope, that it is just kind of clung on to that little line and decided we can make a whole movie out of that. And it, they made a great one. Yeah. One of the other things that I, I really like, you know, knowing a lot of the backstory to the making of the original star Wars film, one of the, uh, one of the things about that is one of George Lucas's very early titles for what he was going to call that film was uh, the adventures of the star killer from the journal of the wills. And so you get, a reference to the wills in this particular film with regards to Chirrut and Baze being guardians of the wills, you know, kind of guardians of that Jedi temple on Jeddah. And that was a really, uh, you know, kind of a deep cut for serious fans who kind of understand the backstory and the making of star Wars. Uh, but it's kind of also an homage to the fact that, you know, it really, this whole film, not only was it a love letter to the fans, but it was, um, you know, respect being given back to George Lucas and kind of a appreciation for the universe that he had created and really wanting to be true to that at a very deep level. Yeah. It, you know, the other thing I think found interesting about this film is that, you know, up until this point, for the most part, I mean, you started to delve into a little bit of gray area here, a little bit of gray area there, especially within some of the prequels and, and the Clone Wars, of course. We definitely saw a lot of that. Um, but this was one of the first times in, within a Star Wars film that we start to see kind of that gritty, dirty side of the, the rebellion that had to be there to make this happen. I mean, rebels aren't, you know, that you can't be just all completely good and clean and do always the what most people would consider the right thing. Sometimes you got to get down, down in the muck uh, to make change happen. And that's what they were doing. And we saw really right at the beginning of this film, a lot of that happening. Uh, and, and we also saw some background as to, you know, not all the Imperials were completely terrible people as well, that they were making decisions based on what they needed to do for their families, for themselves to, progress uh you know their careers through this uncertain time within the universe right yeah i mean i totally agree and and that really is this is by far uh one of the darkest and grittiest star wars films i mean we get some of that within the original trilogy we get some of that within the other films but this one kind of cover to cover is all about that gray area. And it's all about, uh, I always kind of call it the saving private Ryan of star Wars, because it is just, you're dealing with the war as it was being fought by non force users. I mean, we do get the cameos from Vader in this film, but this is not about someone whipping out a lightsaber and killing the bad guy. This is about all of the cogs in the machine, all the people getting down in the dirt, as you pointed out, uh, and, and having to make, decisions that maybe they weren't proud of. Uh, we certainly get that speech by Cassian when uh, he and his crew of mercenary rebels uh, 
sign on with Jin to to go to Scarif, um, you know, they talk about the fact that they've done terrible things in service to the rebellion. Uh, and every time they had to do it, it was because, you know, they, they felt like they were fighting for a cause that mattered and to give up, you know, just was not an option. They would have felt like it was for nothing. So we do get to see uh, that there are, you know, people on both sides who don't necessarily toe the line with the good guy or bad guy persona. Yeah, I mean, what is done for the greater good, and no matter what you perceive, what the greater good may be on either side of the yeah. equation, uh, you, sometimes you do need to do something that is unfortunate, and um, maybe you would you would think would be underhanded or whatever it is. But you know, this is not about just one person or two people or whatever. It's this is about uh, the universe as a whole trying to come back to where. They believe that where their beliefs lie and, and pull it back into that. And sometimes their sacrifices have to be made. And it's it's unfortunate, but that's just the universe they are in and the universe that as as a reality. Right. Yeah. The other interesting thing about this film is that it's really the first time we deal with a Star Wars film that is really an ensemble cast. It's following, you know, this crew as opposed to one or two or three main characters. Uh, and, you know, they did, a, in my opinion, I thought they did a wonderful job of telling you enough about these characters or introducing you to these characters in a way that you felt like you had some stake in them, like you had made a connection with them. Uh, because certainly by the time we get to the third act of the film, uh, and you know, the dark, the darkness begins to fall and, and it really starts to get to the point where you're not sure if these characters are going to survive or not. Uh, and we'll get into that, you know, in a few minutes, but just the fact that I cared about these characters, I felt like they, you know, losing them would be a hit to me, uh, in the, in the span of just one film, uh, instead of having a trilogy to, to build, that was a, a pretty amazing achievement. It's just good writing, good directing. I mean, you, for you to buy into this, for you to feel things about these characters, I mean, you're being introduced to them. I mean, for the most part, characters that you've never seen before. It's not like it's something you've even seen in passing in uh, the animated series or in other movies or whatever, you're learning who these people are within a, around a two hour basis. And for you to care about them, love them, be hurt when uh, they don't make it, uh, you know, and including a droid, you know, I yeah. mean, of all things, you know, it's, it's credit to the writing. It's a credit to the directing. It's definitely credit to the actors that they can make you believe that they are well-rounded personalities that you can buy into, not just a two dimensional thing on the screen. For sure. Yeah. And again, I think one of the things that we know in, in Star Wars is that they have a way of really selling the droids as characters in, in their own right. Uh, and certainly Alan Tudyk did an amazing job with the motion capture and the voice of K2SO. Um, he ranks way up there on my list of, of droids all time. And I want to have an entire episode or series of episodes, uh, so that my wife doesn't leave me, uh, about droids <laughs> since I've been promising her that for a while, but you know, K2SO, uh, as you pointed out, I mean, to care about a droid and to care about an Imperial droid, uh, even if he was reprogrammed is no small feat. Uh, and the fact that he comes up with most of the comedic moments in this film, it puts it right back in that in that sweet spot of what I expect from a Star Wars film. Yeah, and you could argue that his moment uh, where he sacrifices himself may be one of the most impactful moments of the entire film. It's definitely one of the ones that always gets me when it happens at that right. time and how 
his personality was his personality. It's kind of the way he's programmed, but also, you know, some of the things that they did to reprogram him kind of made him into this being that he is. But the fact that, you know, such sweeping change had went through him through how he reacted to Jin, especially, and then those last few moments that he gives up himself. Of course, it was obvious that he loves uh, Cassian. I mean, there was no question about him. He and Cassian have a very special relationship, but he was also kind of in that same place by the end of the film with Jin Erso as well. It was, it, it's growth through a, a creature that, you know, shouldn't be able to show that. And so it, it, it is really well done. Yeah, I mean, both, like you said, the writing and uh, the actor, Alan Tudyk, for yeah. sure. Uh, well, and I think it, it speaks to just how uh, important those characters were. I know in talking to Roe from Scarif podcast uh, as, you know, a Mexican American, he, you know, he was surprised by how uh, how much it hit him that we had uh, this this character within Star Wars now that is is coming from that Mexican American descent, and for Cassian or Diego Luna as Cassian to to have such an incredibly impactful role uh, to be the perfect. Uh, counter to Jyn Erso to kind of form that, you know, go through the entire scope of the relationship from uh, just kind of being this mercenary rebel to uh, getting to the point where he was willing to defy his commanders uh, and join up with her to go to Scarif because he felt like that was the right thing to do and ultimately sacrifice himself um, for this, this mission that was hers. You know, it was a mission that mm -hmm. was undertaken by her from her father to essentially save the rebellion from the Death Star. Uh, he just he's an incredible character I thought he was wonderfully played and it speaks to how important he and K2SO are that they are being given their own spinoff series uh, that I'm looking forward to coming out on Disney Plus I think that's going to be of all the things I mean I'm certainly excited about Kenobi I'm excited about Ahsoka I'm excited about some of these other series but uh, you know, these are not what you would consider to be a major character in the in the sense of an Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, or an Ahsoka Tano. But clearly, uh, they're going to have their own place and their own story to tell. And I think a lot of people are going to be interested in hearing that. Yeah, uh, brilliantly acted by Diego Luna. I mean, uh, this is a character who, as we talked about the gray area before, and with some of the actions that he uh, performed early on within this film, it could have been easy if the, the actor doesn't take it the right way, if you don't feel the sensitivity still within him, um, to dislike him. Uh, even as you're trying to kind of create this likability about him, if the actor doesn't pull it off, if the writing isn't correct, if the direction isn't correct, uh, it really could have been one of those characters that it just never hits and you, you you're fine okay this guy's here and he's seems to be doing the right thing but i just still think he's kind of a despicable person you know yeah. but um again just so well acted and well done and enough like you mentioned for them to you know love people to love this character enough that we are developing a whole new spin-off series that i believe just wrapped very recently it's yeah. either it either is just about to wrap or it just wrapped within the last couple of weeks uh, and so yes i'm tremendously excited about that as well yep uh you know the other some of the other things that i thought that they did really well in the film uh certainly the fact that they brought back tarkin uh grand moff tarkin in cgi form it was you know kind of a cgi overlay on, on another actor's face uh i can't remember the name of that actor right off the top of my head but you know this was that was kind of a big risk you know early in the film you kind of see his face in a reflection as he's gazing out one of the viewports of the death star but uh 
you know, later on you're, you're looking him straight in the face. And certainly the fact that the CGI technology has come to the point now where they can pull something like that off. I mean, you can tell a little bit, I didn't think it was as obvious as the, the CGI for Leia at the end of the film. Uh, but it, did not distract from the film for me. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious enough that it was, uh, you know, kind of a, a downside, uh, to having that character within the film. Yeah. I mean, and for, after first the immediate shock of seeing him, you know, for the first time, because, you know, um, he wasn't really truly expected, but it totally right. makes sense that why he would be there. But, um, I, again, well done. Uh, the CGI I think is, is pretty good. I mean, there's some moments in it where you see a little bit of it there. Yeah. You're like, okay, CG face. I can totally pick it out. Um, but for the most part, it, it doesn't distract from it. You, you, you get through every scene that he's in and you, it's, it's believable. And, and, and again, it gives more backstory on Tarkin, who you don't get a lot of in the original trilogy. If you've just watched the films and not read any of the books or seen um, some of him within Clone Wars or some of the other uh, things he's been in. So you get more about him and how he's kind of gone through this era. And what an opportunist he kind of is, you know, ready to pounce on this thing once he was ready to push it aside if it didn't, if it failed. Right. But as soon as it worked. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, this is mine now. I'm taking hold of this thing. Yep, I'm going back to Palpatine and saying, "Look at what I did." It's so great. I feel like everyone's got someone like that, you know, in, in their office yeah. or in their life. You know, sure. they know who that person is. Uh, certainly, you know, Tarkin was all about uh, taking the glory, and uh, you know, about the weapon I first spoke to the Emperor about years ago. Uh, so yeah. clearly it was all on him. The other, the other, uh, character that really jumped out at me, uh, in this particular film was Mon Mothma, uh, the actress that they had play Mon Mothma in this film, uh, Genevieve O'Reilly, uh, taking over for Caroline Blackston. Um, she did, she, she looked like a de-aged Mon Mothma from the return of the Jedi. And initially I was like, is that what they did? Uh, mm -hmm. but the fact that they found someone who could be her daughter, uh, and was just such a spot on perfect match. Uh, I thought that really made that aspect of the film and, you know, uh, Jin's interfacing with the rebellion there early on. Um, and certainly around the, the table later in the, in the film, when Jin was trying to sell them on, on launching that attack on Scarif, uh, she just played the character so wonderfully. And it was so, it, it was just such a touching thing to see that character brought back to life within this film. Yeah, I, I agree completely with you, Rob. When I first saw him, like, I had to think about it. I'm like, wait, that can't possibly be the same actress, right? She doesn't, like, you know, like, uh, history hasn't, you know, not aged her at all. Like, it's treated right. her very well. Now, you know, obviously it was a, a different actress, but it was so close. It was perfect. But, you know, the other great thing about this is Mon Mothma is such an important character. And, again, it's another character who you only get moments with within Return of the Jedi if you've only seen uh, the films. And you don't really know much about her other than, it, obviously, she's a very... Uh, important leader uh, within the rebel alliance so to get more of her to kind of find more about her and i believe that she's going to be in the cassian andor series as well i think i've heard that she's been cast in that so i'm looking forward to possibly getting even more you know depth involved with that character of course if you've watched star wars rebels yeah. the animated series you've, you've learned a little bit more about her as well but it's good to, to get her out to such a broader audience because she is arguably you know outside of leia herself the biggest 
uh, character, the biggest driving force to the Rebel Alliance uh, that there was. Yeah, the other and, and the uh, really the other character that jumped out at me was uh, Jimmy Smith's coming back as Bail Organa. Uh, certainly, you know, was a great tie-in and and was a way to I feel like get those uh, Star Wars fans that that really do have that. Uh, that connection to the prequel trilogy, you know, to kind of make them feel vested in this particular film as well. Uh, and I thought he did a great job. I mean, just the, the way he subtly played off of, uh, you know, I, I have someone I, well, I trust her with my life, you know, uh, right. the references to Leia. And it was really kind of the foreshadowing for getting to see her in that final scene of the movie, granted it, you know, not being, uh, the actual, princess leia that we grew up with but uh and that was certainly one of the cases where the cgi uh was was a little bit more rough but i just really enjoyed seeing jimmy smith's i always like that character uh even though i don't necessarily love everything about the prequels uh he always played uh that role very well within the prequels i thought Right. And just to tie, like you said, a tie into the prequels there and just the reveal when he first uh, comes on the screen and he just kind of comes out of the shadow there. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, and I haven't watched it um, for a couple of days, mm-hmm. uh, but like the force theme uh, is played as he just kind of comes out from a, and it's just like, <gasps> yeah. it's Yana, you know, it's like one of those moments that just takes your breath away. And, and again, ties this movie into the prequels. And he's, you know, it, it was a question when he was first cast within the prequels of like, okay, is this the Bail Organa that I pictured or right. whatever? But now, like, he is Bail Organa. Yeah. When you see him, I don't think of him as anything else. Uh, so it was, it was just, the, it was just so well done. Right. Yeah, and I and I guess the other thing that uh, that really jumped out to me was that when we do get to the the dogfight in the uh, in the stars above Scarif there at the end of the film, we do get so many awesome little callbacks in such a short period of time uh, to characters that. That, that we know and love from the original trilogy. Um, certainly we get to see Red Leader kind of reprise his role. Uh, again, another piece of CGI work they did that I thought was sold very well. But uh, we also get to see how Luke's Red 5 opens up. Uh, mm-hmm. So we get we get to see Red 5 kind of get, get separated from his wingman and get scrapped by the Imperials there, uh, opening that up for Luke to take on once we get to A New Hope. So... Again, I, you could go through probably for hours and talk about all the little nods that they made to pieces of information that are meaningful to fans of either the original trilogy or any of the other Star Wars films. But uh, I do want to kind of take a, a step aside from that and, and talk a little bit about the making of the film. And uh, Gareth Edwards, who I, I certainly credit with the look and the feel of this film, was not necessarily uh, the only director that we had involved with this uh, due to some reshoots that Disney had decided they wanted after seeing the first cut of the film. Uh, And it's kind of, I shouldn't say it's surprising because it has kind of become a hallmark of, of the Disney era of Star Wars films where they do have difficulty getting the product that they want. I guess what were your thoughts on on uh, Gareth Edward first and foremost, and then kind of some of the controversy surrounding the shooting of this film? 
Well, I mean, I've mentioned it already. I think that uh, part, of, part of the credit to this whole thing is, is the, the direction of these actors and this, you know, the, the creation of the story along the way to um, make it tie together. Yes, especially when we've seen some problems uh, within the production itself that they've had to you know, do some things, do a lot of reshoots, whatever. We've seen that. You mentioned it, Rob, several times recently. Sometimes it's worked. Sometimes not quite as much or as quite as well. Uh, but this one definitely worked. Now, it is interesting. I mean, if you go back and watch the original trailer, that there are so many scenes within that trailer that you know, that all hit the cutting room floor, right. you know, because of these reshoots, because they decided to approach things in a different way, which, you know, I hope someday we get a, a book on why that was and what, uh, what happened and, and why these different, because I, I mean, one of the most, if you watch that trailer, one of the most striking things is when, and they, they have something similar, but not quite exactly the same when Jin is on that tower and she goes out there and then up pulls this tie fighter right in front of her, you know, and you're like, Holy cow, yeah. what's going to happen now <laughs> with that thing? Ha-, you know, and there's other shots where like she's running with the data pack across right. the beach and whatever, you know, and that obviously was not how this was all done. Um, for whatever reason, they didn't feel that worked. But uh, what they came across came up with, you know, credit to Gareth Edwards, credit to uh, the writing crew, uh, credit to Lucasfilm that they were able to uh, find those pieces, um, get these actors together, weave it together in a way to make this film be as we've already discussed, one of our favorite Star Wars films of them all. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly they they ended up bringing in John Gilroy to kind of work on some of the reshoots that they had wanted. But one of the one of the issues I think uh, that we're dealing with here, and, and I've talked about this before on other podcasts, maybe not so much here, but when we look back at the original trilogy, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, you know, it was Lucas gambling with his own money, essentially. Um, once Star Wars was successful, he, you know, he initially never thought he was going to get to make the rest of his story. Uh, and certainly not, you know, nine films of, of the Skywalker saga. But early on, he had his vision. He had his plan. He was the one driving the story and and providing the information to the directors because it was you know ultimately a different director for each film back then uh but it had one set concept that it was working toward and that was what was in the mind of george lucas and one of the things that occurred really with star wars as a franchise is that he was playing with house money during the original star wars film then he was playing with his own money for the next two films and eventually he kind of became what he originally had railed against, which was, uh, you know, a corporation. Uh, he had turned star Wars into truly a franchise. There was marketing, there was action figures, there was all kinds of, uh, of things. And he ended up having to form Lucasfilm and ILM formally. So he ended up becoming kind of this creature that he originally was, was not a huge fan of. And because there was so much, uh, stake in everything that was done after that, I think that kind of at a very basic level changes the way that you make these films. And certainly once Disney purchased it for, uh, I believe about $4 billion, they certainly were invested in this and had to make sure that they were successful with the films they were making. And I think that sometimes that has created a situation where, um, you know, there's not that 
set individual with the vision of where they want this to go. And we've seen this with a number of Star Wars films since Disney has taken over that there has been, you know, conflict with, uh, you know, having to bring other people into finished films and uh, creative differences maybe between the, uh, the Lucasfilm story team and, and uh, what was going on with the directors. So hopefully this is something that gets resolved in the long term, but certainly I don't think it ended up hurting this film. No, it definitely uh, didn't. Obviously, I mean, again, uh, it's one of our favorite films. It didn't hurt this film at all. It may, it may have improved it. We don't mm-hmm. know what the cut would have been uh, without all these changes that they had to make, these reshoots. Um, as far as what you're discussing, as far with Disney and Lucasfilm and everything, I, I one thing I, I, I agree with you. I think that there have been some problems that they there hasn't been the one singular um, voice kind of leading the pack as much as maybe is necessary or would be preferred preferable uh to this um the one thing i see i've seen more recently is that it's especially with the success of the mandalorian that i think they're falling back on and relying a little more on what we hear out of uh, dave filoni for Mm -hmm. one and also john favreau which i think uh, makes a, a terrific team one because i believe filoni really knows star Wars. He's about the closest thing we have uh, within the, in Lucasfilm right now to George himself and, and, and believes in George's vision and will be able to tell you what George probably would have thought about any instance, about anything that would have happened within the universe. And then you have John Favreau on the other side that kind of brings this modern edge to the filmmaking, you know, and can pull it from what George was, how George did things and maybe how Filoni sees things and, you know, add that extra depth that may strike more of the modern viewer the more the modern fan and so i i am hoping and i'm from what we've seen from the announcement of series that are coming in the near future uh to the star wars universe that a lot of that kind of feels like it's being um fed by filoni and favreau and kind of their concept of what the universe will be going forward and so i feel like maybe they're starting to see this and maybe they're listening to them a little bit more and maybe they're going to be the driving force uh, behind what we see going forward. But we'll just kind of have to wait and see on that. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, You know, one of the other areas that was incredibly risky, I feel like, uh, for a Star Wars film, uh, theatrical release was the fact that this is the first Star Wars film that we get that was not scored by John Williams. And when you say it, maybe doesn't sound like the world, you know, the biggest thing in the world, but the reality of it is, is that John Williams has created the music that is basically what informs the emotion of every Star Wars film up to that point. And to dump that in the lap of a new, a new composer, and in this case, Michael Giacchino, uh, was a huge responsibility, uh, you know, to consider that he had to make it sound like Star Wars, but also not like Star Wars, because this was going to be its, it, you know, a film that was not part of that Skywalker saga directly. Um, that is just an incredible job to be handed. And what's even more insane is that he was given four and a half weeks to write and, and produce this score. Yeah, that's that's the most insane thing I think of it. But uh, we've um, Michael Giacchino is no rookie to, you know, making soundtracks, uh, creating scores for films. Um, He was to, you know, the Star Wars universe. But, you know, he has a 
wide array of history of doing great things. And he definitely took that and put it into use uh, within this film. Didn't skip a beat. I don't, I mean, I, I think if you had listened to it, you may not have even, if you weren't paying attention, known that it wasn't John Williams that wrote it because there was enough interesting new sound and music and score that was definitely uh, specific to Rogue One. However, there was enough also nuance to the things that you love, the things that you know from the Star Wars that you would, it, it blended so very well. And I, I, I really appreciated what he did to to create this film. And I hope we get to see uh, a little more of him going forward. I love that we're, we're getting some new composers to do things. Uh, Ludwig Gorenson uh, with the Mandalorians doing some amazing things that yeah. don't sound star Wars yet. They do sound star Wars at the same time. And I, I just love that they were starting to interweave these other composers in still inspired by the, the master that was, was he's not past, <laughs> but is kind of moving on from the Star Wars universe. So, right. um, from John Williams, of course, is who I'm speaking of. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, and you know, I did want to take a minute because one of the things that that I got into as part of my Star Wars fandom was really getting into the music of the films. Rebel Force Radio had done a series with David W. Collins. Uh, it was a few years ago now. I think it started back in 2015. Uh, went for about 38 episodes, and uh, it was called Star Wars Oxygen. I believe. It's now going to be available on their Patreon page, so it's no longer available just through the the normal podcast downloads, uh, which makes me a little sad because I think there's a lot of great information there for for Star Wars listeners to really understand the the level that John Williams went to with composing a lot of the, these different scores and a lot of these different themes uh, within the Star Wars films. But when you start looking at Michael Giacchino and, and the things that he encompassed, you would think that with four and a half weeks to write the score for this film, that he would have been slapping stuff together and just trying to get it done as quickly as possible. But interestingly enough, he went so much deeper than that. And I do have a couple of clips that I do want to play uh, just to kind of give the listeners an idea of, of some of those things. And the first one is that, you know, there's a theme that is used throughout uh, a lot of films, uh, a lot of different soundtracks. It's called uh, Dea Sire, and it's taken from a medieval, uh, basically, Mass of the Dead. Uh, and it is a, it's just four notes, uh, but you hear it in so many films. It's, it's in films that Michael Giacchino has made, uh, I'm sorry, scored, uh, but it's also in movies all throughout Hollywood. And I just do have a clip here from uh, New Hope when, when uh, John Williams was scoring that film. Uh, and it's the moment that Luke pulls up to the homestead there and finds uh, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru kind of laying dead and, and scorched by the stormtroopers. Um, um, and this is just a snippet of what that sounds like. So it's just those four notes. It's a day of So you hear that that progression of notes uh, throughout many films but when uh when you look at rogue one it is literally threaded through the the music of the entire film uh you hear it stated so many different places it's actually embedded in Jin's theme uh since you know and, and that actually informs you a little bit about her character because that's really her purpose within this film is to kind of 
to stop the Death Star, which when you talk about, um, you know, the the mass of the dead or the death and destruction, which is really kind of what that theme harkens back to, there is no bigger statement of that than the Death Star that can destroy entire planets. And so you hear that throughout the film, most notably in the track, The Master Switch, and we'll listen to a bit of that here. That is something that's used throughout Hollywood. But the other thing, and the thing that jumped out more at me, uh, and this was, again, found by David W. Collins, was the fact that there is an even more subtle theme from the Star Wars films that gets stated in this film. And I'm just going to play a little snippet of it here from when Luke triggers the hologram of Princess Leia while tinkering with R2 in the workshop at his uncle's moisture farm on Tatooine. That actually ends up being used within the original Star Wars film as a way to indicate, uh, you know, the quest of getting that message to the rebellion so that they can find the plans and stop the Death Star. And that gets stated in Rogue One a number of times as they are kind of passing the torch on to get that message to the rebellion to get those plans. And uh, one of them is right before Jen gets the message from uh, her father, Galen and uh, the rest of the crew in the, in the jail cell there comes across the cargo pilot, Bodhi Rook. And that sounds like this. So you can hear the flutes in there and you can also hear some statements of Deizire in in that particular clip as well. So just the thoughtfulness that went into that for him to pick out such a subtle uh, little piece of, of of a cue from the original Star Wars film and to thread that into Rogue One uh, and use that for the exact same thing. It, It is this, you know, passing of the torch, this uh, continuing on of this mission to save the galaxy from the Death Star uh, just speaks to how well he had done his homework in terms of how John Williams scored films and to put those little callbacks in there that even if you don't hear it consciously, your subconscious makes that connection as well. 
I'm just constantly amazed by uh, some of these brilliant people who do these scores, uh, including, of course, John Williams, the master, Michael Giacchino, Ludwig Gorenz, and there's so many more, Hans Zimmer. There's mm-hmm. so many great composers that are out there that they look, their minds just work differently than yeah. we do. There's just no way I could think of putting all these things together and having the subtle nuance. And I, I would probably slam the force theme in the middle of it or something, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, to try and make my point, you know, but they weave it in subtly and it just you know you may not even it may be there and you may not even notice it until you've listened to either the score all by itself or you've you know you've booted it for the 13th time or whatever it's just constantly impressive to me that these people that their brains work these way and i i bow down to them all because it's all spectacular stuff and it makes us feel uh, certain ways about all these films yeah i'd actually just seen a video today uh talking a little bit more about some of the things that jacchino had done with some of the music from the original films and one of them that just absolutely blew my mind was he was talking about uh you know certainly this this film does not have the opening crawl and the opening you know theme uh the way that the original star wars film did but right there uh when saw comes and picks up Jin and they cut to the title screen and they have the you know da 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 that music, uh, there was someone who had basically taken that, the notes from that theme, that little snippet of theme, and compared it to the theme from Star Wars uh, that we all know and love, and basically shown that if you strip out the repeated the repeated notes, and then you arrange all of the remaining notes from lowest to highest, it is the exact same notes in both themes, and he had basically just taken the DNA of that original Star Wars theme, rearranged it and created what we hear in Rogue One. So it's just incredible to me. Uh, He just changed up the order in the intervals, basically disassembled the Rubik's cube and yeah. put it together in a, in a different form with, with different colors on different sides. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. And again, I, I have no background in music theory or anything like that, but it's just, it, it blows my mind. Uh, how great a job that John Williams did and really writing themes that evoke the emotion that you're supposed to be feeling in those moments and how there is this new generation of composers that grew up listening to John Williams and his scores for these star Wars films, among others. Uh, and they have really, you know, this has formed who they are as composers and they can go and play with those same snippets, uh, and those same building blocks and build entirely new scores, entirely new themes, uh, that all, as we, you know, st- stated at the beginning, you know, they still sound and feel like star Wars, even if they're different from what we know as the, the typical star Wars themes. Yeah. Just, just enough nuance. Like we've discussed it many times, you know, it's, it's some of these films and some of these shows, Completely different sound, um, but you, you can listen to it. And especially when you associate it with the visuals you're seeing on the screen, it it feels like you're you're all part of the universe. But it's just maybe a different part of the universe, mm-hmm. different planet, different region, whatever it may be. You feel it. You know that you're still within this this galaxy within this realm. Yeah. I, and I do want to, uh, before we end this discussion, I think it would be remiss if we did not talk a little bit about that Darth Vader scene at the end of this particular film, which was, uh, by all accounts, one of the things that was kind of added late in the game. Uh, it is just the perfect 
scene of all the Star Wars films to really see Darth Vader at the height of his power. We don't see that really anywhere else. You know, we certainly see Anakin just as he turns in that battle that he has with Obi-Wan in, uh, in Revenge of the Sith. But in terms of Darth Vader in the suit uh, at the height of his power, not having, you know, some relatively uh, demure <laughs> saber battle with Obi-Wan in the hallway of the Death Star. This is Darth Vader at his prime. Uh, and I thought that was one of the most powerful scenes in the entire film. Oh, there's no question about it. They made Darth Vader scary again because when we were kids growing up, you know, he enters in in this big black suit and he's lifting people off the ground and he's, you know, force choking people and whatever. And so, you, yeah, I mean, he was scary, you know, and... Uh, obviously, if you, it was, and especially looking back in hindsight and looking to modern times now, if you look back at the lightsaber battle with Obi-Wan, of course, it, it looks pretty lightweight in comparison to some things that you got out of the like the prequel trilogy and, of course, the anime series and everything else. Um, so to see him wield his power the way he did and just run through Rebels uh, through that hallway um, – in the dark, you know, just lit basically by the red blade of his lightsaber. Mm -hmm. uh, it was terrifying again. You you remember again why you were afraid when Darth Vader first appeared on the screen as a kid. And now there's new generations that understand why Darth Vader, why you could be so afraid of this black cloaked armored individual yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, I just remember watching that the first time. And as the rebel, you know, fleet troopers were sitting there and unleashing all these, bar this barrage of blaster bolts at Vader and he's absorbing them into his hand. And you know, the, the callback to empire strikes back where, you know, Han Solo, uh, mm -hmm. and Leia and Chewie are with Lando and they open the door into the dining room and Vader standing there. And, you know, Han gets that, that one shot away before Vader force yanks the, the uh, blaster out of his hand uh you see him absorb the bolt in that situation but in this particular montage you actually see him absorbing these blaster bolts and then releasing a bolt back out of his hand into one of the rebel rebel fleet troopers and uh that was the first time i'd ever seen that ability anywhere within the star wars universe that got my full attention yeah and uh, that it's so very true uh you know and then just lifting people up to the ceiling and yeah. then dropping them down you know with a force um and and also credit to the actors that portrayed all those rebels within that role because the the fear the desperation the, you know uh, that was taking place during that the score the lighting uh it was just so well put together and one of the most impactful scenes you're going to see in any star wars you know it was just a little couple minute not even fully couple minute clip uh, uh, that happens but it's it's one of those things where you walked out of the theater you went wow do you believe that one scene it was it was really well done for yeah. sure yeah and then i mean this film literally takes you up right to the start of uh of star wars a new hope uh which you know to me when i start was trying to think of how I'm going to rank the films. I almost have to keep those two films together now because they just work so seamlessly with each other. Um, I do have to, as an aside, there was a great video that was put together at star Wars celebration, Chicago, um, couple of years ago with uh with a bunch of a uh, bunch of people cosplaying as rebel fleet troopers and getting the the stolen plans from an atm and basically taking off through the convention center with vader in pursuit uh that was basically a recreation of that scene so check that out you could probably find it on on youtube uh but it it's a great time to watch and certainly kudos to those guys for coming up with a a cool scene to recreate at uh, star wars celebration 
Right. So inventive and just one of those things that uh, we miss from having some of these uh, conventions going on, Star Wars Celebration or, you know, Comic-Con or whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, I just love that some of these people will go and sell it out so much to create this scene and, and figure out where to do it within these conventions. And it was just so well done. They've, they've done so many different little things like this. So many different people have recreated interesting things um, that have carried over. And I cannot wait until hopefully, you know, here in 2022 when uh we can get back to going to conventions again right. and um we're looking forward to star wars celebration we're looking forward to seeing some of the new stuff they come up with but yeah uh, go check that out it's such a it's a brilliant brilliantly done vi video i don't know who the guys were that uh, masterminded that but uh kudos to you because it's it's it, i've watched it numerous times and i enjoy it every time yeah no lack of no lack of creativity with both star wars fans uh be it with the cosplaying or reenacting scenes or uh you know people like cam ray out there who are now doing country music crawls as text text <laughs> tyler which uh, i definitely would suggest you guys go out and check out cam ray semi productions out on youtube he's got a lot of uh really funny star wars content and is a good friend of the show as well so uh, i think with that we're going to go ahead and wrap it tom thank you once again for joining me for this episode we're going to get back to doing this regularly and uh would you like to give everyone the information on where they can find you and michelle and the hyperion adventures podcast Sure. First, I want to thank you again, Rob, yeah. for uh, allowing me back in the Jedi Temple archives. It's been too long. I'm so glad to have you back and have you getting healthy. And we're looking forward to spending some good quality time with you out at the Walt Disney World Resort coming up here in June and uh, many, 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 many <laughs> vacations together right. in the in near future, along with uh, you know our great friends, Pat and Charles from the Conversations podcast. Yeah. But we're just so glad that you and Kim are doing well. You're healing up and you're going to be raring to go here in just a little over a month. But yeah, uh, yes, thank you. Back to the Hyperion Adventures podcast. That is the podcast that I do with my wife, Michelle. Uh, we mostly talk Disney about the parks, about the cruise line, about the movies. However, we do uh, talk about Star Wars a lot. We talk about Marvel a lot. Uh, we, we give you tips for your vacations and hopefully you'll check us out. If you want to find us, we're pretty much on every podcatcher, but the very best place to find us is on our own website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com. You can also follow along with us on social me media. We are on Twitter, at Hyperion Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. We have a YouTube channel where sometimes we put out videos. Mostly it's just kind of video versions of the content we're putting out there as a podcast, but you can find us there by doing a search for Hyperion Adventures Podcast and hit subscribe and know whenever we have a new video. And if you ever want to contact us for any reason, you can always hit us up at our Gmail account hyperion adventures podcast at gmail.com perfect you got that 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 uh, information has grown and grown over the years for sure but uh definitely check out tom and michelle they are wonderful friends uh, of my wife kim and i and we have so much fun with them both in the disney parks and star wars galaxy's edge and basically anything we do so looking forward to a lot of that in june uh, with regards to our podcast certainly you can find us at jtapodcast.com or on your favorite podcatcher uh, we are also pretty much anywhere there is to be to be found out there if you have a podcatcher that you use that you cannot find us on reach out to me uh, or if you want to reach out with any other conversation items or ideas for future shows you can get a hold of us at jta podcast at gmail.com and we're also on twitter at jta podcast so uh, with that we're going to go ahead and wrap it for this week looking forward to uh, having some future shows lined up 
should be about every other week we should be posting. And uh, with that, I will bid you all a good, uh, good week and may the force be with you.